welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Soko and Judah and Ezekah at Ephestamon. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the Valley of Elah. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, New Living Translation. The descendants of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Mizraim was the ancestors of the Ludites, Anamites, Lehabites, Nephtuhites, Pathrusites, Kasluhites, and the Kaphtorites, from whom the Philistines came. Genesis, chapter 10, verses 6 and 13, New Living Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Anchored by Truth. Again with us today, in the studio, is R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. Today we want to continue our discussion series based on one of the best-known episodes from the Bible, the story of David and Goliath. To help us do that, we're going to use another of Crystal Sea Books' Life Lessons with a Laugh. This is the second lesson in the series of five lessons about David and Goliath. And today's life lesson is all about the need for prayer and obedience. R.D., would you like to say something? Anything before we enjoy hearing you and Jerry spar over tricky names like, say, Jerry? Well, today I'd like to begin the discussion of the historical background for the David and Goliath story. As many of our listeners may recall in a previous episode of Anchored by Truth, I mentioned that when I am reading a historical story in the Bible, I like to approach it by thinking about five possible different attributes of the story. The history of the story, the prophecies that may pertain to the story or the people or the characters that are part of the story, how the story applies to the ancestry of the Bible's central figure, Jesus, how the story pertains or affects the overall unity of the Bible, and the story's relevance to the reader. Or relevancy, to be consistent with history, prophecy, ancestry, and unity. Well, that'll work too. So in keeping with that analytical format, in today's discussion, I'd like to begin talking about some of the historical underpinnings of the David versus Goliath story. I want the listeners to the broadcast or to the podcast to have confidence that we're talking about real history when we're talking about David versus Goliath, not just some form of an enhanced or fictional vignette from David's life, or worse, just a myth designed to perpetuate some sort of a pious fraud about one of the more famous kings of Israel. Again, when we're thinking about the stories in the Bible that contain the characters and the people of the Bible, especially when that story is intended to be literal history, 
it was written and recorded as history, I think it's important for us to be able to have confidence that those people, those places, the events that took place actually existed. As always, sounds like we're going to do some serious thinking today. So let's start on the lighter side with another humorous take on the story of David and Goliath. Hi, I'm R.D. Fierro from Crystal Sea Books, here today with someone who truly deserves a huge introduction, uh, but never gets it. Uh, Jerry. Right on, J-Ray. Jerry. To me, you're the warm breeze after the freeze that makes us sneeze in the spring you bring. Hey, fellow Crystal Sea rowers. Today, J-Ray and I are here to crew with you in that big boat of biblical truth. So let's talk some more about David and go take a bath. I think you mean Goliath. Mm, Possibly. That sounds like a different way of saying the same thing. Anyway, most people know how the contest turned out. David went out armed only with a long piece of leather, five smooth stones from a nearby creek, and that classic fight song. Classic fight song? What classic fight song? God, God will rock you. God, God will rock you. Rock you. God, God will rock you. Rock you. God, God will rock you. He used one of those stones to belt Goliath in the forehead. The Gorgon from Gath went down like an 800-pound scuppernong falling off a 10-story grapevine onto white marble. Ooh, talk about making a mess. Like me, J-Ray does not like the visual, but that's how the contest ended. Still, though, a lot of people have forgotten how it began. Do tell, do tell. I'm going to J-Ray. That's why I'm here. I mean, most people don't even know that before David slung the smooth stone that felled Gorgon breath, he had to do a workaround with his own team captain, a long, tall drink of water named Saul, who happened to be king at that time. Before David could whap on Goliath, he had to convince Saul to let him get into the game. Say what? Saul put out the call. Goliath had to fall. Then he wants to stall? Seems pretty small. Well, J-Ray, being small wasn't Saul's problem. In fact, the opposite was true. Saul shopped in the big and tall section. Extra long spear, 13 shekels, or two large goats. Do you want the four-battle warranty with that? And David was barely out of juniors. But Saul wanted David to wear his armor and strap on his sword. Saul's bronze helmet was probably so big, it looked like David had a coal scuttle on his head. Likely, Saul's sword was digging furrows in the ground when David tried to walk around with it on. Well, if it was planting season, that could have been like multitasking. Focus, J-Ray, focus. David's job wasn't to get an early start on agriculture, but to stop Goliath from throwing shade on the Hebrew army which he had been doing for 40 straight days. Hmm, Goliath probably needed to be sent to human resources for some remedial customer service training. Uh, Possibly, J-Ray. Not sure what 11th century B.C. Philistine public relations procedures permitted in terms of harassing opposing armies. At any rate, David tells Saul he can't take on the beefy braggart in someone else's gear. 
So he signs it back into the armor manager, gets his receipt for returning it in good condition, no dents or scrapes or blood on it, and heads off to the local stream where he can get some good rocks without having to sign for them. Smart, because David knows at least one of them may not come back. No sense having to risk the shackles for failure to return one. You see, sometime back, Saul had disobeyed God. So God told Saul he was going to take the kingdom away from him because of his disobedience. Ever since then, Saul started operating with the world standards. Up to then, David had spent his time in the fields as a shepherd. But even though he was looking after sheep, what he was really doing was walking and talking with God. David had practiced walking with God and being obedient to his earthly father who owned the sheep. Now that's smarter than the grabbing free rocks. Spend time with the Lord wherever you are, because after all, he's going to be there anyway. It's called prayer, J. Ray. When you do it regularly, especially along with Bible reading, the Lord helps you develop wisdom so you're better equipped to deal with the world even if he doesn't give you a specific word in a particular situation. I got you, R.B. Uh, it's, it's R.D. Sure. So, regular prayer can help me make better decisions. Like knowing it's a good idea to wash my gym shorts every time after I play racquetball, even though the Bible doesn't specifically say I have to. I can appreciate the example, J. Ray, even though, again, the visual is a bit disturbing. But you see the point of the story. To make it in the fight, you got to walk in the light. So always stay tight with what the Lord says is right. Again, Jeremation, you have slung your own nugget of biblical truth straight into the heart of fine rhyme. Yeah, the secret is not to let go too soon. Otherwise, that little hummer will pound some truth into your own noggin. No fun. Well, that's it from Jeremy. And it's still Jerry. Me, R.D., and the whole Crystal Sea rowing crew for today. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is. Well, I'll say that you and Jerry have a gift for pithy proverbial poetry. To make it in the fight, you've got to walk in the light. So always stay tight with what the Lord says is right. Just doing that would keep a lot of people away from trouble. So let's move on to the history or historicity of the story. But before we actually launch into that, maybe we should do a brief reminder of why knowing the historical attributes of the Bible and the Bible stories is so important today. Good idea. I think that at one point in our culture, most people probably saw the Bible as being an essentially true book that you could rely upon and that you could trust its history, even though you might have questions about specific parts. But unfortunately, I don't think that that viewpoint is widely shared today, at least based on my own personal conversations with individuals and watching and reading what I see is going on in the popular media. Today, I think a lot of people have gotten the idea that the Bible is at best just sort of a variegated collection of fables and parables, maybe with a little bit of moral and ethical instruction thrown in there. But whatever history the Bible does contain is probably not very accurate, even though it may contain a seed of truth, probably the details of most of the stories in the Bible aren't reliable or aren't accurately reported. At least I think that's what a lot of people believe today. But of course, with respect to the history that's contained in the Bible, nothing could be further from the truth. 
When the Bible records actual history, the accuracy of that history is strongly supported, not only by historical disciplines such as archaeology and paleontology, but also, as we saw when we did our series on Noah and the Flood, by empirical scientific evidence. The essential point at issue, of course, is whether the Bible can be fairly treated as the Word of God. And of course, that's what we're seeking to demonstrate in all of the episodes of Anchored by Truth. Jesus, when he was talking about the scriptures that existed in his day, which was essentially the Old Testament, certainly treated the scriptures that were in existence as the true Word of God. So if Jesus was mistaken about that, it would literally disqualify him as being our Savior. So you see, in a very real sense, the historical veracity and reliability of the Bible is directly related to our salvation through Jesus. If Jesus could be mistaken about such an important fact as whether or not the history recorded in the Bible was reliable and accurate, if Jesus could be mistaken about that, he could be mistaken about a lot of other things. That means Jesus would be capable of error, and being capable of error would disqualify Jesus from being the Son of God, because of course the real Son of God could not be capable of making errors. And if Jesus is not the true Son of God, then he can't be our Savior. He simply wouldn't qualify. And that alone would make it sensible for us to apply ourselves to be sure that we have a good grasp of how we can have confidence in the Bible's historical episodes. So, on to discussing the historical foundation of David and Goliath. Where do you want to start? Well, let's start by thinking about some of the major elements that are found in any and all stories, whether the story is intended to be true or not. At a minimum, stories, good stories, always contain characters, settings, and plots. And of course, the best stories have interesting characters, engaging settings, and dramatic plots. Well, all of those elements are present in the story of David and Goliath. And for simplicity's sake, let's start our review of the David and Goliath story by looking at the setting of the fight. First, the Bible says that there were two nations involved in the confrontation and those two nations were the Philistines and the Israelites. And the conventional dating for when the fight took place was the latter part of the 11th century B.C. David is generally thought to have lived between 1040 B.C. and 970 B.C., and most commentators believe that he fought Goliath when he was still a teenager. So that puts the confrontation with Goliath somewhere in the latter part of the 11th century, and from a historical perspective, that puts it in the latter part of the Late Bronze Age, or the very earliest parts of the Iron Age. And the Bible tells us that the fight took place in the Valley of Elah, which was in western Israel. And you can still find that valley, the Valley of Elah, on any contemporary map, and its location in antiquity is the same as where it's described today. So the first question is, is there evidence that confirms that the nations of Philistia and Israel both existed in or around the area in the 11th century BC? And the answer to that question is decidedly yes. The records of both the Egyptians and the Assyrians confirm the existence of both nations in the general region of Palestine during that time. The Philistines were part of what the Egyptians referred to as the Sea Peoples probably because the Philistines and their allies, likely the Phoenicians and possibly people from Crete or other parts of the Aegean Sea, arrived in that area by crossing the Mediterranean Sea. The Egyptian records tell us that the Sea Peoples were aggressive and warlike. In fact, they were so aggressive that they even attempted to invade Egypt 
which was the dominant power of the time in the region. Well, the Pharaoh Ramses III repelled the Sea Peoples, but even he was not able to expel them from the region of Palestine. And so the Philistines settled in an area adjacent to the Mediterranean Sea in what's called the Levant, or the region that's Palestine. And so the region in which the Philistines settled more or less came to form the western boundary of the territory that was ultimately occupied by Israel after the Exodus. Now, the Philistines never really formed what you would have called a strong centralized nation-state. They tended to exist as a loose confederation of city-states, each with its own government and its own leaders. And the five most prominent cities in the Philistine region were Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, and Gath. And the Bible generally uses the names of those five cities to refer to the Philistine nation or to the Philistines as a group. Well, it's kind of interesting to note that the modern term Palestine actually came from the historical name Philistine. So actually there is a current reminder of the Philistines' presence, even though the original people that constituted the Philistines are long gone. So we're able to locate those cities on the maps today, right? In other words, we can have strong confidence that the Bible story of David and Goliath accurately reflects that the real nations that were in existence at that time. And it makes sense that the armies would have faced each other on opposite sides of the Valley of Ella because the valley was near the boundaries of the two territories that were claimed by each side. Precisely. As sea peoples, the Philistine had settled near the Mediterranean coast. They were comfortable with being on the sea or near the sea, whereas the Israelites were never a seafaring people. So even though the Lord, when he had given his instructions to Moses, had included the territory occupied by the Philistines as part of the promised land that Moses and the Israelites were supposed to conquer, even though the Lord had included that territory in the commandments given to Moses and Joshua to conquer the land, the land that was occupied by the Philistines was not conquered during Joshua's time. Upon their first approach into the promised land, Even though Joshua and the Israelites took command of a large part of the territory in what's modern-day Israel, they were unable to kick out the Philistines. In fact, Joshua 13, verses 1 through 3 says, When Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, You are now very old, and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. This is the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and the Geshurites, from the Shihor River on the east of Egypt to the territory of Ekron on the north, all of it counted as Canaanite, even though held by five Philistine rulers in Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. So see, in the latter part of the book of Joshua, the Bible expressly acknowledges that even though the Philistine territory was part of the territory that the Israelites were to conquer and take over, they were never able to fully implement that instruction. Well, this was particularly unfortunate because the Philistines continued to plague the Israelites for at least another three to four hundred years or even longer. At various times, the Philistines would make incursions into the Israelite territory, and for a time, they would conquer or oppress various portions of the Israelites who happened to live in the areas that they had just invaded. Remember that one of the most famous judges in the book of Judges, Samson, that the chief enemy that Samson was recorded as fighting was that of the Philistines. It sounds like the Philistines were a thorn in Israel's side throughout the period of the judges and even into the period when Saul became the first king of Israel. 
The episode in which David fought Goliath was just part of this long history of conflict between the two nations, and the extra-biblical records provide corroboration for the presence of the Philistines in Palestine during that time period. Of course, it makes sense that when the Israelites left Egypt during the Exodus and finally began to arrive at their destination, the two sides would come into conflict. So the confrontation at the Valley of Ella was, at that time, just the latest in a long series of engagements between the two sides. Exactly. Now, the reasonable question comes up, why were the Philistines such a formidable opponent? What made it so difficult for the Israelites to be able to dislodge them from the territory that they were holding on the Mediterranean coast? Well, one possible answer to that question is that the Philistines seem to have a much better grasp on using iron as a metal for making weapons and other implements of war. The conflict between David and Goliath took place as the Bronze Age was giving way to the Iron Age. Well, a lot of scholars think that by virtue of their connections with other people throughout the region of the Mediterranean Sea, that the Philistines had developed a better grasp on using iron for making weapons or even other things like farm implements. At one time, it was thought that the Philistines might have introduced iron into the region of Palestine, but today most scholars don't believe that this is true, but they still believe that the Philistines were superior in their employment of iron technology over the Israelites. Well, it goes without saying that an army that possesses iron weapons and iron implements of war is going to have an advantage over one that's still using bronze or other softer metals. This may actually explain why Saul decided to offer David the use of his sword, weapons, and armor when David offered to go out and confront Goliath. It may be that Saul had some iron armor or an iron sword because as the leader of the Hebrew army, he would have had the best that their army had to offer. So if iron was in short supply on the Israelite side, which it probably was, then he would have had some of the few iron weapons that were available. And if I understood correctly, not only do the written records of the time support the various elements that comprise the general setting for the story, but archaeological finds also provide good support that the story has a solid historical foundation. Yes, archaeology also lends support to the fact that the general setup that's described in the Bible for the fight between the Philistines and the Israelites took place where and when indicated. For instance, three of the sites of the major Philistine cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ashdod, have been definitively located and either partially or thoroughly excavated. Of course, when archaeologists excavate the sites, they can dig down through the layers of rubble and get a rough determination about when that city was occupied during the course of history by examining the strata that they uncover as they go down. Of course, the older strata are going to be on the bottom. So the excavations at Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ashdod all reveal that they were occupied by the Philistines at about the time that the conflict fight between David and Goliath occurred. The location of the city of Gath, and remember that Goliath was from Gath, the location of the city of Gath is still a little bit in question, but the site that they believe is most likely the site of the Philistine city of Gath is a place called Tel el Sefi. There's an excellent article that's available from the Bible Archaeology Society online entitled 
what we know about the Philistines, that'll give a rather extensive description of much of the archaeological evidence that supports the knowledge of the Philistines. And the knowledge that we have from archaeology all points to the accuracy of the general setting of the Bible story. For instance, the archaeological evidence that's been discovered indicates that there were a lot more iron artifacts found on the Philistine locations that have been found in Israel at a corresponding time period. So again, the discovery, the placement of the iron artifacts in the Philistine locations indicates that they probably had a much better grasp on the use of iron, which would have made them a formidable opponent when it came to having battles between the two sides. What important things does the archaeology tell us about the Philistines? Well, we're going to get into more of these details in some upcoming episodes of Anchored by Truth, but just sort of as a brief and general overview, we have archaeological evidence that provides confirmation about the fact that at that time in history, occasionally conflicts between warring armies were settled by duels between designated champions, and especially that those duels were common in the Aegean region. Other confirmation from archaeologies confirms the details of the armor that Goliath used. Another bit of archaeological evidence that tends to support the story is that shards of pottery that have been dubbed the Goliath shards have been found in Tel El Safe, which is thought to be the location of the biblical Gath, which was Goliath's hometown. Well, I can't wait until next time when we can delve deeper into the history behind David and Goliath. You know, somehow we all connect more to inspirational stories like David and Goliath when we know that they are true stories. After all, it was David who wrote the 23rd Psalm, knowing that he faced the valley of the shadow of death for real when he confronted Goliath makes the psalm even more meaningful. For our prayer today, in recognition of the fact that we have many soldiers from our nation today who need our prayers for their safety as they guard our freedoms, Let's listen to a prayer for deployed soldiers. A prayer for deployed soldiers. Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, we come to you because you are a great God and a merciful God. Lord, we seek your face and your favor for our brothers and sisters who are today in harm's way on our behalf and on the behalf of this nation. We are reminded that our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines have accepted the call to serve a cause greater than themselves in the same manner that you call each of us to place others above ourselves through the supreme example of your Holy Son, Christ Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would grant our soldiers your protection and defense. We pray that you would be a shield and a hedge about them warding off the dangers of the enemy who are opposed to truth and justice. You have promised your children that you would ever be with them and that we need never fear, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We pray that you would bring this promise to the minds of our soldiers and that you would strengthen them even as they see the dangers all about them. We pray, O Lord, that you would grant wisdom to those who lead our brothers and sisters that you would make them ever mindful of their obligations to you and to the less fortunate. Though war is a terrible reminder of the fallen nature of man, we pray that you would allow compassion and mercy to also mark our actions and those of our soldiers, especially where such mercy will lead to reconciliation and peace. 
we pray that you would comfort the families and the comrades of those who have recently fallen. We pray for healing and recovery for those who have been wounded, that you would provide for their needs and surround them with the comfort of your presence and that of compassionate caregivers. We ask that, if it be consistent with your merciful will, that the conflict might be resolved quickly and our soldiers be restored to their homes and families. But we pray, above all, that it would be your will and not ours that is done. We pray that you would help us to see where we may be of service and give us hearts to bring your comfort and your word to the places where they are lacking. We pray that everything we do would serve to bring glory and honor to your name. We thank you that you have given us a part in your work. All this we ask in the name of your precious Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.